0: Fifth grade. It was so long ago. Who can remember that far back? Two whole years.
1: I remember all of, like, the old things. Like, we used to read the book Harry Potter, and um, we made curtains.
0: Harry Potter curtains.
1: And, like, they have, like, new curtains now, and I, I look back at them, and I'm like, I look at them, and I'm like, wow, you know, it's changed. And, like, I wish it was still there somehow.
0: This is Kayla Hernandez in 7th grade at the Pulaski School in Chicago. She says she actually visits her 5th grade classroom, room 211. And her 5th grade teacher Mrs. Chan fairly often and reminisces about the past.
1: Recently I went through the shelves and, like, the like our books are still there, like, Our America.
0: You're talking about the book, Our America.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm reminiscing about, like, when we used to read that book and um, how it, like, it showed... Lots of racism.
0: Back in fifth grade, she covered her copy of Our America with one of those paper book covers you get. It was her copy, though they're not allowed to write their name in the fronts of books at her school.
1: They had numbers, and my number, I think, was like 30.
0: So you did find book number 30?
1: Yeah, I did. I saw the book, and it was just there without its paperback cover. And You know, everything that was mine is not mine anymore. I think like that's the hardest thing from switching to another grade, into another classroom, into another teacher. And there's new environments and new and different things to learn, and well, old memories to leave behind.
0: Twenty years from now, thirty years from now, when you try to remember back to seventh grade, what do you think you're going to remember from this year?
1: Oh, I think I'll remember barely anything. <laughs>
0: Isn't that kind of strange, though, to think that you're going through all these experiences now that somehow are going to get wiped off the blackboard?
1: Yeah, but um, I even have that experience now. Like, I can't remember things from, like, second grade. I I see, like, some things. Like, I remember this kid, he wrote this Valentine card for me. It's like, you're pretty as a rose. I don't know, something like that. But, like, I can't remember teachers really well like I used to.
0: Do you feel sad about that, or is that okay?
1: I feel sad about that because you know it, it's a part of me. It's like you don't even remember what's happened. It's kind of hard because it's it was it's been a part of you.
0: When I asked Kago which of her friends she wouldn't remember at all someday, it wasn't hard for her to answer.
1: Cynthia, I'll probably forget. Um, Adilene, I'll probably probably forget Diana and Maria. I'll forget. Um, Eric Osorio, I'll forget a whole bunch of people.
0: She's not close to those kids or anything. But as she said their names, it was like watching them vaporize or something. Someday they'll just be gone, erased from the history of her life, like they had never been there in the first place. We forget most of everything. And then, sometimes, we go back and try to remember. And there really is no predicting which people and places and moments we're going to be able to get back. Diana and Maria they could still make the cut. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, Return to Childhood, What You Find and What You Do Not Find When You Go Back. I show today in four acts. Act one, Ich bin ein Mophead. In that act, a 34-year-old man investigates who he was at nine years old and learns a thing or two he would just as soon not remember. Act two, Punk in a Gray Flannel Suit in which a mortgage broker discovers that the punk band he was in in the 70s is hot in Japan and decides to leave corporate life for a little bit and go back on tour. Act 3, Ariel Sharon, Shimon Peres, David Ben-Gurion, and me, an American teenager who dreams of someday being the prime minister of a nation where he does not even reside. Act 4, When We Were Angels, in which we hear the purest possible student uprising imaginable, the most innocent documented by an actual student using the crudest tools, a telephone answering machine, and a shiny red boombox. Stay with us. Act one, ich bin ein Mophead. Alex Bloomberg was a producer on our program for many years, and back when he was working here, uh, today's show is a rerun, he made a decision to return to his childhood. He went searching for somebody named Susan Jordan, who he and his sister Kate and their parents knew for about a year when
2: Alex was growing up in Cincinnati. These are the things that I remember about Susan Jordan. Me and her sitting in the back room and telling her about the day camp I went to that summer. I can't get myself to shut up. And they had alligators and snakes, I can hear myself telling her. And this one time, this one alligator got out and the counselor had to catch it, and on and on like that. Me and Susan flipping through one of those time-life books, rock and roll through the decades, the 60s. She has long brown hair. She's incredibly skinny. It's 1975. She's wearing bell-bottom Levi's, a faded jean jacket. She points to a picture of a bloated man in a powder-blue rhinestone jumpsuit, sitting cross-legged on a stage before a crowd of crying women. That's my favorite picture of Elvis, she says. This information seems somehow personal and important. Me and Susan riding in her car, I'm going through this phase where I'm trying to notice things. So when we pull up to a stoplight, I start trying to notice the guy on the motorcycle next to us. He apparently doesn't want to be noticed, especially by a peculiar nine-year-old staring at him through the passenger window. What are you looking at? He sneers. I turn around, fast, and face the dashboard. Did he say something to you? Susan asks. What did he say to you? Nothing. Uh, He didn't say anything. It's fine. Look, green light. Tell me what he said. What did he say to you? I stay silent. I know if I tell her what he said, she'll get out of the car and try to kick his ass, which scares me, but comforts me too. Susan Jordan was our babysitter. She watched my sister and me every day after school for a couple hours until our parents got home from work. We didn't know any adults like her, and we loved her. The summer before I started fifth grade, after being with us for a year, Susan got another job. The last time I saw her was Christmas Eve, 1982. I'm 16, a cashier at Thriftway Foods, a supermarket in Cincinnati, where I lived. The place is packed. All 25 registers are going. People are lined up halfway to the back of the store. I look up, and there's Susan Jordan. She smiles. We talk. She doesn't have many items, so I check them through as slowly as I possibly can. I can't recall one thing we say to each other, although I remember being distinctly disappointed to hear that she's married. She hands me some kind of business card, her husband's probably, something having to do with the building of redwood decks. She seems happy. Meanwhile, there's a line of last-minute Christmas shoppers mounting behind her. I tell her to hold on. I'll try to get my break. We can catch up. She says, great, and steps aside. I keep signaling to my manager, but there's no one to relieve me. Five, ten, fifteen minutes pass. I keep glancing behind at Susan, making apologetic gestures. I can still remember her standing there, holding her one bag of groceries, smiling back at me. Finally, she taps me on the shoulder. I have to go, she says, but I come in here all the time. I'm sure I'll see you around. I worked at Thriftway for two more years. I never saw Susan Jordan again. It drives me crazy that I never saw her again. If I hadn't run into her at the store, I don't think I'd care. But somehow, having her play what to me seemed like a huge role in my life when I was a kid, and then getting just a taste of what it would be like to talk with her as a peer, I've never forgotten that moment. I know it's ridiculous, but after years of thinking about her, imagining what she's up to, wondering if she ever thinks about me, I decide to find her. I start with my only lead, the one former employer of hers that I know. Hi, Mom. Hi, Alex. Uh, Do you want to know why I'm calling?
3: I do, I do.
2: You remember Susan Jordan, right?
3: Susan Jordan. Susan Jordan. Yes, it's ringing a bell, but I can't place
2: it. Uh, She was our babysitter?
3: Oh, Okay, chicken legs and mop head.
2: One of the many ideas that Susan introduced to our household was the concept of the nickname. I think that's all I want to say about chicken legs and mop head. I'd gone to my mother to fill in gaps in my memory of Susan, but she didn't remember much more than I did.
3: She was a babysitter that really had more of a relationship with you two than she did with us. She seemed to um, have a very meaningful relationship with you, almost the kind of uh, relationship that you might have with another adult. Uh, That was about the extent of it. And she never stayed around. When I came home, she was out of there.
2: What talking to my mom did do was make me look at my childhood memories from an adult perspective. Like, for example, what I remembered about her living situation.
3: I didn't get the impression that she was close to her family. I got the impression that she was very much out on her own, very early, young. I think she must have been in the process of breaking with her own parents during that time.
2: That's, that's, yeah, see, that's, that my memory is that, you know, of, of like, she was in high school, right? She went to yeah. mm-hmm. But, but I also remember her living on her – for some yeah. reason, I, I remember her own house. Yeah. And um, the reason I thought that she lived by herself is we, we went to some – we went to her house or her – we had to go pick something up somewhere, and we were in her car, this big blue duster, I think it was. Uh-huh. And, and um, her boyfriend was there, and her, and her boyfriend had let the cats out, uh-huh. and they were, they were gone, and she was furious – and and I got in the car and, and then she like slammed the door and I think we peeled out and mm-hmm. he was sort of standing you know he was he was sort of standing there and saying you know trying to trying to reason with her and we were out of there.
3: Well, what did you think?
2: It made me. I think I felt sad for her. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking, and this is sort of in retrospect, but I think I had some sort of inkling of this idea at the time. I'm just I'm just sort of now realizing it, but I think. I remember thinking that he was one of the few people that she had in her life, and she couldn't even really depend on him.
3: Yeah, you were probably right. She was, she was a struggler, mm-hmm. and uh, you, you may have been um, at that point, at that moment, her only friend, you know.
2: My mom didn't have any idea where I could find Susan, which made things difficult, because A, Susan Jordan is a very common name, and B, it's probably not her name anymore. I called the county court records department to find all the Susan Jordans married in Cincinnati. My mom asked a friend who worked for the city to search all the Cincinnati birth records. I contacted high school alumni associations. I asked friends at high-powered newspapers to run background checks. Finally, there was one former Susan Jordan who stood out. She seemed the right age, she was married, living in a Cincinnati suburb. She had a couple of kids. Her husband was a lawyer. I got her number from information. And it wasn't until I sat down to call her that it hit me. A phone call from someone you babysat twenty years ago might not be a welcome surprise, but in fact, strange and creepy. Here I am practicing sounding benign. One two one two. Susan. Is this Susan Jordan? Is this Susan Jordan? <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, God. Finally, I made the call. Hello? Hello. Uh, hi. Is this Susan? Yeah. Hi. Um, my name's Alex Bloomberg, and um, I'm calling from, from a radio program uh, uh-huh. called This American Life. Uh-huh. And um, I, this is a probably a very strange phone call to receive, but I was wondering, first of all, do you, do you remember me? It turns out there are a lot of Susan Jordans who don't remember me. A lot. One guy even called his ex-wife, a former Susan Jordan, and then called me back to tell me she'd never heard of me. I was getting nowhere by myself. So I contacted a professional. One Irving Botwinnick, a certified New York City private investigator. Three days after putting him on the case, I got a message saying he'd found her. I called him back.
4: I called her this morning early, uh, roughly around 7.30. Mm
5: -hmm.
4: I said, good morning. I'd like to introduce myself. I said, uh, my name is so-and-so, and and I'm a licensed fire investigator in New York, and I'm looking for someone that used to live in Cincinnati and went to a particular school there, and her name at the time was Susan Jordan. Uh Uh-huh. And she said, That's me. And I said, Okay. And I said, I, uh, Do you know anybody named uh, Alex Blumberg? And right away, she, you yeah, know, I babysat. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the interesting part about the whole thing is she definitely likes you, remembers you, and uh, she's going to call you.
2: Hello, is this Susan? This is Alex Bloomberg. Hi, Alex. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing okay. How are you?
5: Fine. Did you get my email? I got your
2: email, yeah. Oh, and I, okay. I, and I, I called you at work, and then I realized that I, I'd also gotten this number from the, from the private investigator. Oh, Susan uh, and I so talked for over three hours on the, the phone, is, is a, catching up, comparing notes. Up she asked about my sister or, or, and kids that used to live on the street okay, or, and our old yeah, family fine. dog.
5: How are you doing?
2: I'm doing okay. It was amazing how much she remembered so listen, and how much we remembered in common. Even small incidents, like the time that we were stopped at the traffic light, and I stared too long at the guy on the motorcycle.
5: I think I remember that. Was it on Erie
3: Avenue? Uh,
2: Probably, probably. And you said, did he say something to you? And I said, no, he didn't say anything to me. And you said, he said something to you, didn't? And you were about to get out of the car and kick that guy's ass, I'm sure.
5: (laughs) I think I can remember your face. I think you were sitting very still with your hands in your lap. Were you afraid?
2: I was terrified. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that he would notice me, exactly. But, uh... <laughs> well, don't worry. But,
5: I, I would have taken him out. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I had no fear. I'm telling you.
2: Do you remember a time, um, you know, we it was like maybe six or seven or eight years after you babysat us. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was working... grocery store? Yeah. (laughs)
5: Yeah, I remember. (laughs) In Norwood, right? In
2: Norwood, right, at the thriftway.
5: Yeah. (laughs) I remember. I guess you... Were you bagging my groceries at the... But I didn't recognize you?
2: I don't... don't... And then
5: you told me who you were, and then I did.
2: Right. Right. I think you said mophead.
5: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I did warp you. <laughs> Do people still call you that?
2: No. <laughs> Susan got married when she was still in college and went to work for the phone company as a repair person. She spent the next 20 years or so hanging from a telephone pole, as she said. She hated it, but the money was good. Around the time her first marriage ended, she finally got up the courage to quit and find work using her degree. She now teaches at a special school for mentally ill children. She lives in Florida with her second husband, and she seems happy. Of course, when you dive back into the past like this, you find how partial and incomplete your memory is. First, there are the facts you get wrong. Turns out Susan had been a college freshman when she babysat us, not in high school like I thought. My sister remembered she'd ridden a motorcycle. Also not true. And the guy who she got in the fight with over the cats, who in my mind was her hairy 70s boyfriend turned out to be her roommate's boyfriend. But besides the facts you change, they're the facts you completely omit. That fight over the cats? Susan had forgotten totally that I'd been there. And it was a little strange because my presence was the only thing she'd forgotten. Other details she remembered fine, even the names of the cats themselves.
5: Possum and Tom. (laughs) We were hillbillies, remember? (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) uh, But I can't imagine what I took you over there for.
2: I'm sure it was for you know I think we were just running errands but, you're so lucky <laughs> it's it's funny because when I, I when i like you know I remember these very particular incidents, and that was one of them and and probably the reason I remember it is because it seemed very significant to you. I think I sensed as a kid that that you were that it was really upsetting to you because it I think I felt at that time that you didn't really have very many people in your life at that point who you could trust.
5: Oh, I didn't have I didn't have hardly anybody. My whole family moved out of town. I had no family at all. I let's see. I moved out the day I graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. And I was 17 cuz I started a year early. I had I just wanted out. See, that's I had found out that I got the scholarship.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: I packed up that night.
2: Why'd you want to get out to bed?
5: Because my family was dysfunctional, but my mom and it was pretty bad. Uh The girl that I lived with at that time, she was taking a lot of drugs, Uh and her boyfriend. And every time I would come home. They would always try to get me to take drugs with them or something and i I really didn't do it much at all uh-huh. and uh, it was really it was it was tough to come home and i I guess I must have been suffering a little bit i missed i really missed my little brothers and my little sister, and they were gone you know, and um uh, i was i guess maybe trying to substitute.
2: I think maybe that's one of the reasons that I remember that we remember you so fondly, though, is because I think it worked both ways. I think that we felt, if that did make you feel closer to us, I think that we we responded.
5: Well, I was desperately, I guess I was looking for a family, really. But, I mean, it, <laughs> if only you knew, you probably wouldn't have hired me. But, I mean, it, their, people are complicated. Now, what I really wanted to do was spend more time with your mom and dad. But I was terrified. I mean, I I just couldn't. I couldn't do it. I was too shy. So a lot of times, I thought they were asking me to stay longer and talk, and I would just run out.
2: I'm sure they were.
5: (laughs) And they probably thought, what's wrong with her? But I just couldn't do it.
2: So you sort of talked to us instead, it sounds like.
5: Yeah, I was comfortable around kids because, you know, I had kids in my family. (laughs) ¶¶
2: Every time the subject of her hard times came up, I'd hear a subtle hesitancy in Susan's voice. At first I thought it was embarrassment, but that wasn't it exactly. It wasn't until we'd been talking for hours that I realized what it was. She was waiting for the other shoe to drop. She hadn't forgotten that her past had happened. She'd just forgotten that I'd witnessed part of it. And her fear, it became clear, the one that had been gnawing at her, our entire conversation, was that I was calling to say she'd damaged me by exposing me to it.
5: I don't think I was... Too kind back then, because uh, there was a lot of turmoil in my life and in my family, and uh, that's what my fear is—that I might have had some kind of negative impact on people. Uh, and I know, probably, I did on a couple people, but they were my age. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, you just want to remember, yeah, I was a babysitter; the kids love me, blah blah blah. <laughs> but uh, I would be devastated <laughs> if I heard anything different.
2: There are parts of your past you don't want to go back to, and parts of yourself you don't want to go back to. And for Susan Jordan, the year for life that I remember is the year she'd just as soon forget. And it turns out, I'd also done my best to forget what I was like that year. I didn't think of myself this way at all, but Susan Jordan reminded me in the gentlest terms possible. When I was nine, I was anxious and bookish. I was kind of uptight.
5: Not to seem as an insult, but I just kept thinking these kids don't know how to play. When I went to your rooms I didn't it didn't seem like you had a whole lot of toys. I I hope I've got this right, but it just seems like um there were mostly books and more educational things. I mean I remember you had planets in your room and uh, mm-hmm. chemistry sets and I didn't remember that Kate had hardly any dolls. You didn't seem um quite as playful as other kids that I had babysat, just more serious in general. So mainly I think that's what I did was try to play.
2: Perhaps the most amazing thing about this whole story is how little our memories had deceived us about each other, even if they had deceived us about ourselves. As Susan said at one point, Each of us remembered what we needed to about the other. I needed to remember the part of Susan that she doesn't think about much, her toughness in the face of hardship. She said she mostly remembered a side of my family that I just take for granted, that it was calm in our house, that there were books, there wasn't much fighting.
5: It was the first time in my life where I had ever seen that people lived differently than Mm -hmm. the way I lived. And that's what I decided I wanted for myself.
2: You can try to return to childhood by looking at photos or visiting the old neighborhood or listening to recordings. Or you can find someone who knew you back then, someone you haven't seen since. They still carry within themselves a picture of you that's unclouded by the years in between. They'll remember you better than you remember yourself. And you can do the same thing for them. Alex Bloomberg.
0: He did that story back when he was a producer here at our show. Now he runs a podcasting company called Gimwit Media, and he's the host of the podcast Without Fail.
3: Brooklyn
5: Roads
3: I can still recall Smells of cooking in the hallways, Rose drying in the doorways, and report cards I was always afraid to show.
0: Number two punk in a gray flannel suit for a long time, David Philp was the president of a mortgage brokerage firm in Beverly Hills. as you might imagine, in Beverly Hills, they handle rather large mortgages. He dresses in beautiful clothes he's clean cut. But back in the 1970s, in England, where he grew up, he was in a punk band called the Automatics. They were never really a big commercial success, but they were respected and known in the history of punk by people who care about that kind of thing and a few years back. Through an odd series of connections, he ended up revisiting his teenage years for the first time by going back on tour in a version of his band in Japan. Here's how something like that happens.
6: I mentioned it to a client, and, and I said, "Well, you know, I, I'd played in um, in a punk group when I, when I was a kid," and uh, he said, "Oh, really?" and he's interested. And, and then uh, the next day, he sent me a copy of um, of an eBay auction and said, "Is this you?" And I sort of – so it was. And I watched this auction. And I watched the, the sort of price shoot through the roof, you know. And then I began to realize, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm collectible. Let's get down to brass tacks here. How much were you guys, did I think that pay? one actually went at $48. I, I particularly liked looking at, you know, all those sort of uh, other groups that were going at 25 cents. Um you know, music bu- business uh, offerings uh, along punk lines uh, that, you know, I thought, what a load of old nonsense at the time. And it was good to see that, uh, you know, their, their, their records weren't valued years later. I mean, it was, it was... Wow. That history came out on the right side. Yes, that uh, there is a sort of Darwinism uh, in, in, uh, in record collecting. What happened next? I went to go and see Ricky, the drummer, and and, and Ricky collected everything, you know, and, and he very kindly lent me uh, these two scrapbooks. So yeah. I took pictures and, and things out of there, and I just put it up on a had a friend put it up on a website, and um, then I got an email from Fifi in um, in Japan saying, you know, oh, I play in Japanese punk rock band, and uh, Fifi's he, a name of a person, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, your record changed my life. Wow. And, and he found out through the website that, you know, there was an unreleased album. So he asked, you know, if he could put me in touch with uh, Toshio Ijima of uh, Bass Records. We, we struck up a deal. And then they said, well, would you come over here and play some gigs to, uh, you know, promote?
0: So so you go to tour. How old are you at that point?
6: I'm 45. 45 years old. Uh, A little um, bit of grey hair coming in A little bit of grey hair coming Mm -hmm. in. And and I really wasn't sure whether, um, you know, I'd still be able to do it. Because I hadn't played those songs in 22 years. You know, not in my shower, not to anyone. Uh I mean prior to being married I mean I remember dating women for you know a year who never knew that I played had, had, had ever played
1: hmm.
6: you know it wouldn't even come up wouldn't come up really I mean I'd have a guitar hanging around but you know lots of other guys did too Would you ever pick up the guitar and play it for yourself Yes I wrote a lot of songs for my dog during this period. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Some of the titles would be "We're Going to the Park" was a big (laughs) favourite, to be followed by that hit "Who's a Good Boy." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, what a good boy! Is actually. uh, It is. (laughs) What a what a good boy. So uh, we went over there on uh, October the 6th. I took my wife, which possibly was a, w- w- was a miscalculation, but... <laughs> no, it was a good thing to take my wife, because... oh, uh, you, you were approached by dozens of teenage girls? I was getting stopped on the street. So what happened
0: the first night you went on stage?
6: Well, there was just, you know, the announcement, the light, and sort of a moment's silence, which lasted forever. and then sort of out at the back I heard the opening riff of When the Tanks Roll Over Poland and there was just this whole ignition of energy from the club in front and all these kids just started going mad and it just clicked right in. felt like I was in an automatics cover band or something like that because it was so long ago I didn't feel that association as you know the writer because I wrote the material and all that I didn't have that association as the writer anymore see but I would wonder if as you sing
0: the songs the conviction of the writing returns to you and you remember all the feelings
6: of it did that happen it was a muscle memory it was there you know you know the movements are all locked in the lyric and the beat and the, and the parts you know, and, and as I played them, they all started to come out, and it was just like a sort of like being a marionette or something. You know, here you punch the air, uh, you know, or there you sort of bring it, you know, remind the drummer to come down, and uh, you know, and here there you point at the, uh, the the guitarist for the solo. You know, had you forgotten the thrill of being on stage? Yes, I'd forgotten what it was to um, you know. Have the audience right there.
0: Before this, had you ever performed a punk show sober?
6: Never. Well, um, unless I had, uh, unless I was taking the antibiotics. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, Not that's, unless there's I was... So much information contained in such a brief
0: sentence. <laughs> <laughs>
6: No, it actually it was one of the great paradoxes. Really, I suppose that uh, that it was great to do it sober. Were there moments on stage where where, uh, where you felt your age? Where you just thought oh, towards the end, you really feel yourself. You know, because it, it, because it, it's like a sauna up there. I mean, there's so much energy going around, and uh, you know, it, it's louder than bombs.
3: Never, never, never go.
0: So your wife had never seen you do this before. There must have been a part of you which felt so pleased that she could see it. Yes.
6: I I felt kind of like, uh, you know, I'd become this other person. And um, when I was over there, my life over here seemed to have a sort of almost dreamlike substance. And then of course as soon as I got back <laughs> the events in October in Japan just you know, began to assume that sort of mantle of dream. I did three shows, uh two in uh two in Tokyo and one in Kyoto. And all three just just great. All three sold out. In Kyoto, we set a club record for the largest attendance ever. It was so packed we couldn't actually get off stage. The only way out was over. I had to sling myself over the audience and they carried me on their hands back through the crowd and gently deposited me at the stage door. So, this is your last gig? That was your last gig? Yes.
0: And and it ended with the entire audience lifting you up and, and
6: passing you bodily uh, out and gently depositing you out, out of the club? At the, well, not out of the club, but to the stage door, yes. Wow. Well, it was amazing. I, I don't think I've ever really been lifted by a mob of teenagers and people in their 20s. Um, what, what exactly is that like? Um, well, in Kyoto… I felt pretty good about it. <laughs> I'm not sure how I would have felt about it in London in 1977, where the scene was incredibly violent. You know, whenever you played, you were you were just as likely to get beaten up as you were to get paid. Describe what it was like to come back after the tour. It was hard for me to get motivated again uh, to do my business after the um, uh, after the tour.
0: It, it just wasn't
6: as thrilling as being on a stage in front of cheering. Well, not many things are, and it's a bit like sort of you know, you know my, my dad's generation. You know, after sort of you know growing up as a kid, you know being fired on and, and in, in, in you know World War Two and all that kind of stuff. It was it was kind of hard getting getting it up for uh, for you know working at the shipping in the shipping industry again. Shortly after I got back, um, Steve Lillywhite was in town. And that is? Uh, he's, he, he, he was the original producer and he was also my roommate at the time that uh, all the automatic stuff was going on. Uh, and uh, now he's you know, incredibly successful. He does like you 2 Dave Matthews and all that stuff. You know, and, and anyway, he was in town and he had some time. And, and so we hung out together for a couple of days and Hunter was off. Um, and, Hunter, your uh, wife? Yes, Hunter, my wife. Uh, so um, you know, we got to hang out and we talked a little about the old days. And he told me, you know, Big Paul from from Specs uh, uh, does catering in uh, hmm. you know, a, a, and uh, Nigel from the Members is in Australia now, and uh, uh, and Walter from the Heartbreakers he's a stockbroker in Manhattan. Uh, so it was, it was. It, it, I, I think I got to see. We don't get what we deserve, you know we get what we get and and we have to be okay with that
0: David Phelps, the lead singer of the Automatics David is still writing music, he's released several albums since we first did this interview a few years back a couple of those new songs even became number one hits on the UK charts his latest album, West of Wherever comes out in November coming up a fascinating day in the life of a future prime minister, maybe. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This is American Life, Myra Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, Return to Childhood, stories of people revisiting the past, what they find there, what they do not find there. We first aired today's show a few years back. We've arrived at Act Three of our show, Act Three. Ariel Sharon, Shimon Peres, David Ben-Gurion, and me. Sometimes when we revisit our childhood, it is not very pleasant what we find. Take, for example, our next guest. When he was a teenager, he started reading the biography of David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel. And one of the things that he learned is that all of his life, David Ben-Gurion kept a diary. And the whole package
7: seemed like a good idea. The job, the diary. December 3rd, 1986, Wednesday... Another fascinating day in the life of Adam Davidson. I have a math test tomorrow. I'm going to school early to tutor a girl in my class for the aforementioned test. My math class, a joint precalculus and calculus class, consists mainly of seniors not especially interested in learning. I guess that I'm the, quote, class expert, unquote, in that I always do the math problems which no one else can. And for this, I'm disliked. I guess that because I apply myself, think clearly, and do a little work, as well as some intelligence helping out, I am a geek. In truth, I am far from it.
0: When you first um, read that to yourself, when you first saw it, uh, your reaction was? It was pure horror. Recently, Adam Davidson, an occasional contributor to our program, found his old high school diaries. Adam's mom is Israeli. His dad is American. Adam grew up in New York. his body was in New
7: York. His brain, as the diaries reveal, was somewhere else entirely. I remember when I was writing it, I remember very clearly, although I don't, I don't say this in the diary, that it was very clear to me that this was the diary of the future prime minister of Israel, me, <laughs> um, that, that I would one day be prime minister, and it would be very important for history, for people to know, the deep thoughts of a young Zionist as he prepared his way to lead his nation. Now, our our regular listeners here in This American
0: Life might remember that that you've been on our program describing uh, your experience in
7: Israeli army summer camp. That was right before I started writing this diary. Read, Read me another. Sure. Let's see. Um... There's so much wrong with Jews and Israel that I'm going to have a job ahead of me. One thing is the lack of any strong Jewish identity among most Jews. This attitude sickens me. You Jews of the world, stop worrying about money and well-being. I do not know what exactly I'll do. But if this situation continues when I'm a bit older, then watch out, world Jewry. Here comes Adam. And watch out, world Jewry. Here comes Adam was all in capital letters. Wow! Yeah.
0: It's interesting that you actually are addressing a readership. I know.
7: I know. That's what. That's what's kind of amazing. And that readership is is world Jewry. <laughs> right. Yeah. The Jews of the world will one day read this book and will say. If he knew this at 16, how could I be living so badly? Can I ask you to just read one of the passages where you talk about Israel? Sure. Let's see. I mean, I have this thing from January 4th, 1987. I memorized the hope, Hatikvah, which is the Israeli national anthem, a few minutes ago. That will help me in Israel. (laughs) I find that really (laughs) amazing that here I am, the future prime minister of Israel, and and what are the things I need? Oh, God, I need to know the national anthem. I'll probably be called upon to recite that at some point. Or there'll be a ball game or something. I need to
0: stand up and sing it. Right, exactly. January
7: 14th, 1987, Wednesday. I'm getting more and more angered by the effects of Arab propaganda. They blame the Jews for everything. And the world, including Jews, go along with it. Entirely ridiculous. I mean, I really thought this was, this was a testament for the ages. I really thought that this writing was powerful and persuasive and anyone who would read it would immediately become a Zionist. At 16, I had such an inflated sense of myself there was so much going on in my life then that I can remember and I wasn't recording it. Instead, I was creating this ridiculous fantasy of, you know, I'm not just a 16 year old kid who's, you know, having crushes and, you know, a hopeless geek who can't get a girl to kiss him and being scared and confused about growing old. I'm, I'm the future prime minister of Israel and everything, you know, goes through that. But, I don't know. I mean, well, just but maybe.
0: The... But maybe keeping a diary where one tells the truth. Maybe that's a, a luxury of being a certain you know kind of person in a certain kind of situation. Maybe, maybe maybe other people in another kind of situation need to actually make up a little fantasy.
7: Yeah, I think um, I didn't have much angst about being the future prime minister of Israel, I was very calm and confident and comfortable with it. And I had so much angst about every other aspect of my life. And so I now see it as just kind of a maybe it was a good solution, you know, it was a good way to deal with this, with with what I was going through to have this space where I could just be, you know, one of the greats. I wonder what uh, the
0: 16-year-old Adam Davidson uh, would feel in knowing that finally,
7: you know, an audience of a million people was was getting some of the reading from this diary. I think this would feel so small to that 16-year-old. This would feel so nothing. I mean, I remember I was very disappointed and very sad about my parents. I mean, I was reading biographies, of course, of all the prime ministers of Israel, and... And I would just think about my parents and just think, how do you wake up every day knowing that your actions won't affect millions of people? Like, how is that enough motivation? You know, just to have your petty little craft and your petty little family and your small little apartment, like, you know, it just seemed pathetic. And... And I mean, they have the kind of life that you know. I mean, basically, I, I want my, for myself. What you're saying, though, is is that the 16 year old you would be cringing at
0: your 30 year old, <laughs> right? Version, just as your 30 year old version is cringing at the 16.
7: Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, he would be very, very disgusted if he heard this this radio piece. It would seem like I had settled in a pathetic way.
0: Adam Davidson. These days, he's a staff writer for the New Yorker. Act 4, When We Were Angels. This story originally came to us from a graduate student. Hilary Frank was studying drawing at the New York Academy of Art, and she mailed our radio show a story that she wanted to get onto the program, and what she had done is that she had recorded the interviews using her little microcassette answering machine, and then to edit the quotes that she had gotten, what she would do is that she would record by dubbing and recording onto her shiny red boombox. It was crude, yes, but the story sounded remarkably like a story from This American Life. Now, for one reason or another, in time considerations, that unsolicited story never made it onto the radio. For this week's show, however, we had her put together another story using that same style, which we added music to here at the radio station to make it fully sound like a story on our show. It's a story about an incident that happened to her back when she was an undergraduate.
8: Tufts University is a pretty straight place. Entertainment for most people means fraternity keggers. It's not the sort of place you'd expect people to watch a guy sitting on another guy's shoulders pretending to be a giant. It happened by accident in 1994. My friend Scott was the top half
4: it was beginning of the school year and we were um kind of bored one night and we decided to go up to the quad and i guess basically jeff got up on uh you know on someone's back and he started yelling and screaming about you know how giant he was and you know how magnificent he was and uh i think actually right after that i might have gotten on someone's back and said yeah you know i am also giant,
3: <laughs>
4: and uh, I guess that really struck a chord in me, I thought that was, uh, you know, pretty amusing. I guess I thought a lot about it, um, it, it actually did, uh, you know, start me thinking along <laughs> a particular path.
8: Scott talked about the idea one night in the dining hall. The next day, on the way to class, he saw signs all over campus that said in bold print, I am nine feet tall. Come see Giant Man, 8 p.m. on the quad. Scott had no idea who put them up. He learned later that the signs were posted by a guy who had overheard him talking at dinner. Scott decided he would go to the quad at the specified time and undertake the challenge. To pull this off, he would need to create a character and a costume for the giant. He gave Giant Man a booming voice.
4: I don't even know exactly. It was something like, you know, uh, Behold, I am giant! You know, just this, uh, you know, not even loud, but just kind of weird and, you know, sort of suggesting (laughs) grandness (laughs) in some vague way. Uh, You know, I don't know.
8: Scott asked his tallest friend, Poto, to act as giant man's legs. They grabbed some props before heading up to the quad, a blanket to wrap around their middle to hide Poto, a long wooden staff, and a black curly wig like the guys in Kiss.
4: We picked a a point in the bushes, Poto and I, and and I. um, we kind of really couldn't see what was going on out on the quad, and so the time came, and I got on his shoulders basically and tied the the, uh, blanket around my waist, and we walked out. And I remember there just being maybe, you know, maybe 10 people, 15 people. Right. And I remember them being way on the other side and sort of running. And it, what was so ridiculous about it was, you know, there was like just a handful of people and they were so spread out, but they were all sort of coming towards me. Right. And it was like, you know, what the what the hell am I doing here?
8: They decided to plan another Giant Man appearance the following week. They posted more signs and told everyone they knew, Go see Giant Man. It'll blow your mind. Word spread quickly, and amazingly, they were able to keep it secret that they themselves were Giant Man. Most students believed there was an actual nine-foot man come to Tufts for some mysterious reason. I was friends with these guys, and I didn't even know yet. At the next appearance, almost 200 people were waiting for Giant Man and chanting his name. It was like a political rally. Some of them carried signs that said things like, We love you, Giant Man. Why are you here? Save us from ourselves, Giant Man. Nine feet of lovin' and Giant Freak. Go home. Giant Man made his way onto the quad and the crowd went wild. People came rushing out of their dorms to see what was going on. When giant man reached his fans, he made a small speech. "I am giant," he boomed. "I am huge, and I have brought you butterscotch." He then threw cellophane-wrapped butterscotch to the crowd, and they dove for it.
4: On the on the walk up, um, I, I just stopped in the bookstore and you know saw some candy, and I was trying to think you know what was like the most ridiculous candy that nobody ever ate, and I, you know. Like, you know, there was butterscotch there and some kind of, you know, cellophane wrapper. It looked like nobody, you know, ever was eating it.
8: Butterscotch became Giant Man's trademark treat. When he ran out of things to say, he would revert to throwing candy. The fact of the matter is, Giant Man had very little to tell the Tufts community other than... My strength is amazing, my girth is enormous, and my height is unequaled. He would brag like this for only 2 or 3 minutes and then retreat back to the bushes.
4: The problem was Poto would get really tired really quickly. <laughs> like he he would he walked out, you know, really fast, like he almost was running out and you know, he got really tired and didn't even know where he was going and he kind of just I mean, it must have just looked absolutely idiotic
5: <laughs> so he
4: couldn't see yeah i mean he was basically his eyes were covered like i remember i would i would sit on his head and i would put both my hands on his head mm-hmm. kind of like give him direction by like you know maybe forcing his head in a certain direction
8: giant man became a phenomenon enthusiasts wore i love giant man t-shirts which had silhouettes of a huge man with a bulging middle there was once a parade across campus with noisemakers and a trumpet to greet him Another time, there were torch jugglers and bodyguards. Letters were written to the student newspaper, Pro and Con Giant Man. Teachers were mentioning Giant Man in class. There was a discussion in an ethics course in which people who hadn't seen Giant Man argued about whether or not we were exploiting a freak of nature.
4: I remember I was, I was out there. There was this guy that I kind of vaguely knew who um, was there with a bunch of his buddies. I guess they we were like, you know, from the same fraternity or something. And they um, were, were jumping around and stuff. And they are saying, Yeah, we're, we're going to take Giant Man down. <laughs> when I went out there, um, you know, I was talking for a little while. And then I saw him. He was, he was sort of right behind me. Or, uh, you know, they were coming up from, from the side, him and his buddies. And um, I remember him just sort of coming up and starting to pull on my sheet and stuff. And one of them tried to push me. And, you know, Poto, who could barely stand as it was, you know, after, you know, walking out there and with me on the shoulders was, you know, he was sort of um, shaking a little bit. And we managed to stay on his feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember just sort of, you know, offering them butterscotch and just, you know, sort of screaming about how much I loved them. And um, they... um They just kind of took off, and and it was over.
5: Do you think that if Giant Man had been an actual political cause that you would have gotten such a big turnout and there would have been such a big deal about it?
4: Yeah, I I, I doubt that. I mean, if there was really... That's, like, one of the things I think that that was a big draw about it was that, you know... You d- it didn't have any meaning right and for whatever reason people were really uh drawn to that right
3: <laughs>
8: i mean if,
4: if it had meaning or um you know was trying to to pitch some idea or something it would, it would kind of seem less real i think when there is there was really something fundamentally uh interesting and like you know truthful about giant man i guess I mean, you know, there is something (laughs) that human, you know, people are drawn to, um, to that absurdity for, for whatever reason.
8: By the end, Giant Man's following had grown to about 350 people. I don't think any of us have had any experience like it since. When you're a student... It still feels like something exciting might happen at any moment. Life feels full of all this potential. But when you get out of school, that potential just doesn't seem to be there.
4: What do you do now? Um, uh, well, uh, I'm an engineer now.
5: What kind of engineer?
4: A uh, computer engineer, designing um, you know, computer circuits and things like that.
5: And do you have Giant Man-like experiences today?
4: (laughs) Um... No, I mean, not really. I, I, uh... You know, I'm not parading around, um... (laughs) talking about my magnificence.
8: (laughs) (laughs) There's actually a recording of Giant Man's final public appearance There was a band called the Electric Fun Machine that dedicated a song to him, and he appeared with them at a concert on the quad.
3: I have come to show love.
8: As a symbol of my benevolence, I shall once again shower you with... And then, giant man threw butterscotch candy.
0: Louis Frank. In the years since she first did this story for us, she has created many radio stories and a podcast called The Longest Shortest Time, which is about parenting. Her most recent book is Weird Parenting Wins.
1: But it's a long, long while
7: from May
1: to December And the days grow short when you reach September well,
0: today's program was produced by Jonathan Goldstein and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Starly Kine, Aaron Yankee, and Annie Baxter, and mixed by Jared Floyd and Catherine Raimondo. Senior producer for today's show is Julie Snyder. Our technical director is Matt Tierney. Production help from Anna Martin. Musical help today from Mr. John Connor. Special thanks today to Lawrence Weschler, Lacey Kine, Craig Danwire, and Anahid Lani. This American Life is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Maratia. You know, he's been rereading the Bible and talking about it with me in the break room. I don't know about his interpretation of the Bible. Like, okay, God creates two people to live in the Garden of Eden. I really don't think he says,
7: Watch out, world jewelry. Here comes Adam.
0: I'm Ara Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life.
1: And these few precious days I'd spend with you These golden days I'd spend